0: After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as i get a unique insight into britain's favorite stars with a little help from my
1: glamorous assistants yeah well i say glamorous more like hazardous and of course we'll have a bit of fun along the way the 1960s was an explosive time for british music especially in the northwest of england where a musical revolution was taking place frank allen of Merseybeat group the searchers joined the band in 1964 replacing bassist Tony Jackson and continues to play to packed out theatres to the present day. Hits include Needles and Pins, Sugar and Spice, and Every Time You Walk in the Room. I caught up with Frank on the band's recent Isle of Wight of their nationwide tour. Ladies and gentlemen, Frank Allen of The Searchers. You joined The Searchers in 1964, replacing Tony Jackson as lead bassist. How difficult was it coming into an already formed band?
0: It was actually um, very easy, really, because I came in from a, um, a really big band, oh, not big in chart terms, like that. It was a, with a group called the Cliff Bennett and the Rebel Rousers, and it was, um, you know, saxophones and piano and things like that. And so, and a very a much more, you could say, complicated kind of music than the uh, kind of pop that the Searchers did. So translating from what was um, a difficult music basis, going with the Searchers was. Quite easy, quite easy to do, and I was, They were friends of mine as well, so I knew them, I knew their songs, and um, no, I didn't have any problem at all.
1: Am I right in thinking that The Search originally formed as a skiffle group in 1959, and in what ways has skiffle had an influence on the band's sound? Was that, well,
0: we couldn't put it down as exactly 1959, it was mid to late 50s, that's when Skiffle, in fact, I think Skiffle came in, really the first Skiffle hit, hit in Britain was about 57, so and we all started forming bands, I was in Skiffle groups in the London area, and John McNally, who's of course with the band today, and his pals started Skiffle groups up in um, Liverpool. And the thing about Skiffle was, why it was so important, and it's a kind of forgotten genre really, it's never got the credit it deserves. We'd all been kind of like seduced by guitars and rock and roll and the romance of the whole thing. But once we bought these guitars, we couldn't really play them. So you had to learn bit by bit, learn one chord, two chords, three chords. And what Skiffle did was allow you to get on stage with the bare minimum of talent, three chords. You could actually play a whole evening's worth of songs with three chords in Skiffle, which Skiffle was just really the english interpretation of american folk stroke blues music and it gave you the grounding and the confidence to get on stage and entertain people and from that there was the jumping off point to becoming a little rock and roll group a rhythm group and then going on to improve yourself as time went on
1: so throughout the 60s the searchers became regulars at the infamous iron door in liverpool how important was this venue to the searchers early success
0: um, all of the clubs in Liverpool were important to to all of the groups that made it in Liverpool. The uh, Iron Door uh, was looked on as the home base of the Searchers. You know, they did all the other clubs like the, uh, the Blue Angel and the. Uh, Mardi Gras and of course the cavern but uh, that was considered whereas the Beatles were considered their home ground was the the cavern mainly um for the searches it was the iron door I only ever played there once and that wasn't with the Searchers. it was with Cliff Bennett and the Rubber Rousers it was in um I think it was uh either the early part of 64 or the latter part of 63 and um, we were on a tour up the north of England and they booked us there. In fact, I remember we were late that night and went on, did our show. And we never got paid, so there you are, that's life.
1: <laughs> so, in regards to the development of the band, how crucial was Tony Hatch?
0: Very important at um, guiding the band and keeping control. He wasn't a uh, record producer in the sense that he chose the material and arranged it and... Uh, uh, more or less um you know guided through all the intricacies of it because the band being a young band had already had their finger on the pulse of what was what was new in pop music you know tony really was a traditional kind of um uh, much more uh regular sort of musician whereas you know pop groups, pop is always uh to do with youth music and so the band could pick its own material at that time, and they could interpret it in the ways that other people would understand, but Tony was the controlling factor, he would keep the band steady and guide them in their path, he would be the moderator if there was arguments between, and if there was an opinion wanted, Tony would give it, and he could also give mu- musical clues as well when things got a little bit too complicated for um we who were you know, really basic musicians. I mean, Tony was fully trained, a classically trained musician. So, um, not as a producer, he was, uh, he was very helpful and very important in the career of the searchers.
1: Were you ever targeted by Brian Epstein or NEMS? And what sort of rivalry was there between Merseyside acts?
0: We were targeted by um, Brian Epstein once. First of all, um, he turned the band down once. This was before I was with them. It, they, it was uh, when the Mersey uh, beat thing was first kicking off in Liverpool. Brian went down to the cabin to see the searchers. Apparently they spent the uh, interval in the uh, pub across the road that night, got back uh, slightly the worst for wear and didn't play very well and he passed on the searchers. But later on, uh, when everyone had had their chance of success and the searchers had had a couple of hits, Brian admitted that the one group he wanted to sign was the searchers. And in fact, it almost happened at one time because we, we read in the papers one day that um, uh, Tito Burns, who was our manager had sold the contract to Brian Epstein. We very quickly got a call from Tito Burns, uh, no, a telegram from Tito Burns saying, don't take any notice of what you've read in the papers. It's not true. I wouldn't sell you like a can of beans. Um, he was right in one thing that it wasn't true. We hadn't been sold to Brian Epstein. Um, it wasn't true that he wouldn't sell us like a can of beans because he have sold us for a good price and he could have got one. That was Tito.
1: The Searcher's debut single, Sweets for My Sweets, reached number one in the UK. Why do you think that song, like so many others, has stood the test of time?
0: Simple song, very catchy, great tune, nice lyrics. It was written by Doc Permis and Mort Schumann, who uh, um, wrote some of the all-time classic songs like Teenager in Love. They also wrote Viva Las Vegas. Um, And the... And it was a great arrangement. And uh, I've got to say, that although it was originally a Drifter song, and the Drifters provided so many good songs to people who covered them and made bigger hits than they did, the, the, the Drifters were always a class act. I have to say, I think that the Searchers version swung a bit more. It had a much um, brighter edge to it. It was a much more appealing product. And I can say that without any bias, because I wasn't with the band when they made that one.
1: So fifty years later, and you're still on the road. Though over time members have come and gone, how do you cope with these changes, and how do you have to adapt and incorporate new members? Mm,
0: um, we've had more drummers than anything else, and that's with no disrespect to drummers. It's an easier thing to cope with because um, they can learn their part. There are usually no great vocals to in, uh, to introduce, so they, you know, it's, it's a simple matter of keeping the time and then gradually getting used to the set list that the, that the band has. If you are going to um, replace someone like a, a lead singer or a lead guitarist, then that's a different matter entirely. And when um, Mike Pender departed the, the band at the end of 1985, it was a very big deal. It was very, very frightening, but we put our minds to it. We got the person that we wanted, that we spotted and thought would take the place very well. And in fact, once we'd overcome that little obstacle, it was seemed so easy and so effortless to get that change going, so uh, we decided we were never going to be frightened in the future. And uh, we had a few, as I say, mostly dramas, but that's about it.
1: What's still the thrill of performing for you?
0: Oh, the thrill is still there, just going on stage, getting that kind of applause from the audience. It really is. It's always been about contact with the audience. Um, you know, every three minutes, someone applauds you and kind of more or less says you're wonderful. And, uh, things don't, things don't get too much better than that. I love it. I'm just an old ham. You know, I, I came into this business not just for the music, although I was obsessed with rock and roll when that first came out. I also love the, art of being on stage, communicating with people, and um, being applauded by people, which is what I think it's all about for most entertainers.
1: And looking back at your career, what's your proudest achievement?
0: Um, longevity, I suppose, would be our private uh, our proudest achievement, because we thought we'd get about three or four or five years out of it. Here we are 55 years later, and there's it's not going to stop um, within the next couple of years. So... Uh, that's a pretty big thing. We've had some great times. We've, we played in front of uh, uh, 160,000 people at Wembley Stadium, two days at Wembley Stadium, 80,000 people on each day with Cliff Richard in 1989. Did the Royal Variety Show in 1981. We uh, topped the bill over all the Motown people like the Supremes and Marvin Gaye and Martha and the Vandellas, Smoking the Miracles at the Fox Theatre in Brooklyn in 1964. Um, Got to say that. Some of the most momentous times that we've ever had for me has been the things we did for the British forces in places like the Falklands and Bosnia and Belfast and uh, sailing on the um, uh, HMS Illustrious down in the Mediterranean. And uh, that was different to anything else we've ever done. And it's one of the things I look back on with the greatest fondness.
1: So what's next for the searchers? More of the same. <laughs> get up,
0: o- get yeah, get over the last few years before we finally have to call it a day. Before age finally uh, catches up with us, it would be nice to have another hit before we go. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, it's been mooted that we'd be uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I have no idea if that's going to happen. It's been talked about for a long time. Um, any kind of recognition to uh, make us feel, you know, to have a a final highlight to hang on before we hang up our guitars and say goodbye to everyone something to bring us into the eye of the general public uh, for one last bow before we quit
1: and you've got many more dates left on this tour or this well this well the
0: kind of tour we're doing at the moment doesn't end because these are our um, all evening shows so uh, we are in a run of these all evening shows on this year and next year it will go into a, a Unending run of the same kind of shows all next year. We do do what we call a tour at the end of the year. That's the 60s Gold Tour, where it's a package tour, and that is a beginning, a set beginning, and a set end. And that's with ourselves, Jerry on the pacemakers, the tremolos. The Love Affair and Steve Ellis, uh, uh, Vanity Fair and Steve Ellis, of Love Affair. So uh, that's going to be good fun as well. We don't, we, we do those maybe once a year, once uh, every two years, and that's a lot of fun. Get to uh, hang around with a lot of your mates for a, a couple of months and uh, enjoy a different kind of audience.
1: Lovely. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Thank,
0: Thank you so for having nice. me on the programme. Good thanks to meet you, you James. And to you.
1: A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again, and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.